Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. Hey, Trey, how are you doing today? I'm doing real well. It's great to be a little bit near to you right now. Yeah. So. yeah well, well, thanks. Thanks so much for, for joining. Uh, for, I should... I should let folks know that uh, Jay is just getting back from his vacation. He has not abandoned us entirely. It's a little bit of a hiatus, but uh, there's a little bit of a communication snafu. And at the last minute, Trey, being the good guy he is, I I, I uh, contacted him last night in a semi panic, saying we don't want to we don't want me to do the show by myself. I'd done that before, and it did not go well. So uh, Trey uh, was so graciously uh, was willing to drop everything and, and come on and record the show with me this morning. And I really appreciate it, Trey. Thank you. Of course. I'm really doing it for the fan mail, though. Well, there, uh, there you go. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the fame and fortune involved with this that really is so attractive. But, uh, but yeah, and we, of course, have a lot going on this week, as always. And, you know, one of the big things was just happened just yesterday when Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced that 12 Russian military intelligence officers had been indicted on charges of hacking Democratic Party computers, and then stealing and publishing the data they had illegally obtained. And now this brings the total number of Mueller indictments to 32, and there are a variety of charges, including, let's see, hacking, money laundering, and lying to the FBI. Now, of those 32 indictments, 26 are Russians, and they're, I would say, uh, highly unlikely to actually be brought to trial in the United States. Um, now, President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, responded to these latest indictments with a tweet saying that this was good news for all Americans. The Russians are nailed. No Americans are involved. Now, he also said that Mueller should end this pursuit of the president and say President Trump is completely innocent. So, Trey, uh, what's your take on this, you know, especially with President Trump meeting Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday? You know, this last week we were speculating about the Putin meeting. And one of the things we said, and I, I don't often say, hey, I think we were just both spot on right. But in this <laughs> one, we were both spot on right listeners. Uh, because what we basically said was, you know, we, we couldn't see what would be the advantage of this Putin meeting and all of the negatives that could happen given the ongoing investigation. Well, here we are, and exactly what we were talking about has gone on. So we, here you have uh, Donald Trump trying to have his pomp and circumstance moment with the queen, and this is when the announcement comes out. It's coming right before his meeting with Putin, and so it makes this meeting with Putin look absolutely insane. Uh, and, and, and in a way, I think that it probably didn't even a few days ago, because in some ways you kind of wonder, I mean, you do the 12 Russian intelligence officers right now. I mean, you didn't have to announce it this minute. Uh, apparently, uh, you know, Trump was briefed. And if, and if he was briefed, that's the time. Th this would be a great chance for him to call that meeting off. Right. I mean, it gives him a chance, I think, in some ways to save face. And the fact that he has not, I think, is simply, you know, forget the content of it. It's just an image issue. Yeah. And, and of course, there are a number of Democrats who are calling on him to cancel the meeting in light of this. And of course, to, to my mind, that's the exact w worst way to get 
Donald Trump to do something is to ask him to do it. If you're his, if you're his political opponent, I mean, he he has such a long history, decades long, of going exactly the opposite way of what his his opponents want him to do. So uh, that that of course was was destined to fail. You know, I also wanted to point out that uh, Rudy Giuliani was was just flat out wrong about no Americans are involved because in the in the indictment itself. Uh, it alleges that there was one U.S. congressional candidate who was involved. Now, we don't have a name. There's also a reference to, again, unnamed, but most people say it's Roger Stone. So not only that, but we have reasonable evidence that Donald Trump Jr. actively sought to collude with the Russians to get dirt on Hillary Clinton, uh, even though he wasn't you know, ultimately successful in doing so. It seems pretty clear based on just the evidence that we have that there was a strong interest in that. So that part of Giuliani's tweet is just flat out wrong. And of course, the idea that 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 Mueller would would say that President Trump is completely innocent uh, before, you know, all the all the facts come out and so forth is is ridiculous. Well, and this is the administration's par for the course, Michael. I mean, we see this. We're going to talk about this more with the NATO meeting in a moment. We say one thing. We say the exact opposite thing. Thirty seconds later. Uh, and and that actually seems to me to just be kind of a Twitter pattern. I mean, one of the things we could probably spend a lot of time talking about this in a in a Twitter social media world, the content of information is constantly kind of slipping away, and so you're always hit with this new immediacy thing, uh, the the newest thing that's coming forward to you. And I think that's the way the Trump administration, or at least Donald Trump himself, and I would say Rudy Giuliani is just trying to be a little uh, mini Trump when it comes to this. The same reason he's tweeting about this uh, is this con. They're just they throw things out, and it has no necessary bearing on anything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Uh, a couple of before we move off of this story, a couple other points I wanted to, to make is you know. I think this indictment also suggests that there's plenty of evidence that the Mueller team has that we don't know about. And, and this this is why, you know, I've said this before. I hate the speculation game. And I've said there's a lot of stuff that the media doesn't know, which is why it's so important to let this investigation go forward and not push to end it prematurely, as so many Trump supporters and the president had seemed to have wanted, and really to withhold final judgment until we actually have more complete information. And it drives me nuts that people are rushing to conclusions on either side, really, you know, without knowing that there's so much more information out there that we don't have. Uh, That's one thing. And secondly, I should point out that it seems once again, this is more uh, demonstration that this Russian effort was focused almost exclusively on the Democrats. And, you know, this is something that our intelligence community said way back more than a year ago, that this was an effort by the Russians not just to disrupt the 2016 presidential election, but to do so in the hope of getting Donald Trump elected. And, you know, of course, is Donald Trump, you know, what is the, was there collusion? I don't know. But certainly we know that Donald Trump has a long and somewhat sketchy financial history, some of it involving Russian finance and so forth. And so even if there is no collusion, if you're if you're a Vladimir Putin, you got to think, well, this is a guy who's maybe more malleable because of those certain elements in his sketchy past than, say, Hillary Clinton. Well, and I think something else that needs to be pointed out to the 
to the Trump side is to say that you know it, it's also a possibility. We just don't, as, as you're rightfully pointing out, we just simply don't know. It's also the possibility that in some ways you have a simply a coin toss t- coming from Russia because they want to screw with the election. You know, I mean, it, this, you know, had there been another Republican candidate, would Russia have been involved? The answer is, I don't know, maybe. And maybe they would have played it the same way if for no other reason than just to be screwing with the election. Uh, so you're absolutely right in this sense that I think there's an assumption that, uh, which is a big one, that says that if you know, Trump has been getting help from the Russian campaign, it's because Trump has to be sleazy. Now, I think that Trump is sleazy independently. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what, what happens with this? But it doesn't necessarily mean that it could be Russia. Again, like I say, flip the coin. We just don't know. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key thing that I that I push on. We certainly all, almost all of us, have our suspicions. But uh, the, the extent of to what we know compared to what Robert Mueller knows is there's a huge gap there. And and when this investigation wraps up, we will know presumably quite a lot more. And I think then we'll be in a position to make uh, more uh, well-informed speculation, more informed, uh, well-informed conclusions about some of these things. But see, that's not the fun part. No, no. Say, let's be patient. Speculation on uh, cable news and wait and read something. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there's one area where the speculation is over. Uh, President Trump this week, early in the week, and now uh, nominated D.C. appellate court judge Brett Kavanaugh to fill the Supreme Court vacancy that, of course, was left by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Now, Kavanaugh is 53 years old, and like Justice Neil Gorsuch, he clerked for Kennedy. Uh, He's been the favorite of the conservative legal establishment, and it's fair to say that he will almost certainly be a reliable fifth conservative vote on the court, most likely, I'd say, landing somewhere to the right of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts. And if he's confirmed, Kavanaugh is going to be yet another in what I would say has been a long line of sort of cookie cutter justices. I mean, they're this cloistered little group. They're all at this point, Harvard or Yale law school graduates. They spent essentially almost no time at all outside of elite legal circles. Um, And one thing I think that President Trump might have particularly liked about Kavanaugh is his views that presidents shouldn't be allowed to be distracted from their work by civil lawsuits, investigations or subpoenas. And some on the left would say, well, that's a view he conveniently adopted after he played a a major role in the investigation of President Bill Clinton, though I suppose the other side is, well, I saw what that was like. And, you know, but anyway, um, so Trey, you know, Anything surprising to you uh, about this nomination? And, you know, how do you see the confirmation playing out here? Well, so on the surprise, no. I mean, the the process that Trump has done this, we talked about this last week, it has been his most by the playbook anything. He has he had far and now uh, far out announced kind of his list of candidates. The fact that he's once again tapping somebody uh, who's close to Kennedy, not a surprise given that Kennedy is retiring. So I, I don't think that he himself is a, is a surprising pick. The thing that I have noticed that's a little bit surprising is that it seems like there is a a group here on the right uh, that's a, that is worried that he's not far enough to the right, which is an interesting <laughs> yeah you know, it is an interesting take. I was not expecting that at all. So you know, last week when we were talking about 
you know, who's it going to be? Because we didn't want to spend, we, we, like we were saying a minute ago, we don't want to spend too much time uh, on the speculation side of things. Uh, so that has been an interesting development. It doesn't seem to be getting a ton of steam. And as I think as we move forward, it's going to be relatively quiet. Uh, but I just thought that was interesting. And it might, I think it shows that there is a hope for maybe even more uh, uh, from some, some, some factions of the Republican Party. Now, on the, on the fight to get him in, you know, last week we analyzed this a little bit. And I'm going to say again, I don't think there's a big chance that he can get uh, taken down. I know Sh- uh, Schumer, he's been under pressure to try to kind of force the Democratic Party into a no vote. But uh, listeners, just pragmatically speaking, leadership in the Senate cannot for uh, individual senators are highly independent, uh, structurally speaking. And you've got a number of Democrats in red leaning states. I'm looking at you, Indiana. Um, I'm looking at Florida, where I believe that if the if the you know, if Nelson in Florida, for example, uh, votes against uh, confirmation, I think he's almost handing it to, to Rick Scott to, to be a senator. So I don't think there's going to be much of a, a yeah. much of a fight. The Democrats are going to be tough to get it on. And I don't think, you know, for instance, Politico suggesting that Rand Paul or somebody might flip. I think even if one Republican flips, it's not going to be enough to undo the flipping Democrats. And I think it's unlikely to see too many Republicans flipping because that's going to be their own kiss of death. Yeah. And I know already, you know, Collins and Murkowski, who are the two that the, the, the left was sort of targeting on the Republican side, it pretty much said, yeah, we're we're OK with voting for this guy, basically. And, you know, I think that's a great point you make about, you know, certainly there's a lot of pressure from the Democratic base to really fiercely oppose Brett Kavanaugh. But, you know, I think behind closed doors, the Democrats are saying, well, we have at least an outside shot at maybe getting a majority or at least, you know, not losing certain seats. And so I think there are probably two messages. And one is to the public saying, well, we are going to you know, fight this with everything we have. And there's probably another message leadership is saying to some of these imperiled Democratic senators saying, well, we understand if you can't do that and so forth. But of course, in public, we're going to have to rail against you and, 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 you know, and that sort of thing. So, well, you know, and for and for those on the left or our listeners on that side, I mean, keep in mind, you have to make a trade off here. So even if Kavanaugh gets shot down, you know, it, it's not as if Donald Trump is going to play off the playbook that he's going to pick somebody else not on that list who you are suddenly going to love. So you, you can't indefinitely stop this hit. And if you win that battle, I think it's likely that you lose any hope of having a midterm flip in the Senate. I, I don't think that's likely, but uh, it becomes impossible. <laughs> so you, you, you got to decide what you want or what you think is the, the biggest priority. And I know that's, that's a difficult you know, thing to say. It's a frustrating thing to say, but that's the truth of the matter in politics is you can't win every single battle, you got to decide how to spend that political capital. Yeah. And thinking longer term, if you're actually, you know, I, certainly I, I don't think that Democrats are going to uh, take the, take a majority in the Senate, at least not in 2018. But if you're looking longer term, you think, well, there's certainly a good chance that President Trump gets one, maybe even two more Supreme Court nominations. And so wouldn't you rather be in a position if you're on the left, you know, as I am, where you have a Democratic majority in the Senate. I say, well, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, especially, you know, I, I wanted to get into this a little bit. I mean, 
Kavanaugh's going to get confirmed, and I would I'm betting with one or two Democratic defections and all the Republicans voting for him. But what's interesting to me is what potentially happens after that. If, say, for instance, you know, Clarence Thomas, who I believe is 70 and he's said to have been sick of being on the court for quite a long time, you know, uh, if he decides to retire or, you know, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, is certainly not young and there's, you know, a few other justices. So thinking about that, you know, one of the finalists uh, and the person kind of the darling of the far right on uh, in this uh, sweepstakes, if you will, was uh, Seventh Circuit Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, she's only 46 years old. She is an outspoken, uh, outspoken Christian. She's it's really like a strong social conservative. Uh, and she's also a, a little different from most of the justices because she actually graduated from a non Ivy League law school on Notre Dame, which, you know, pretty good law school as it is. But she made it all the way to the, the very finals, which is interesting to me because she's only been on the she's only been a federal judge for actually less than a year. Donald Trump uh, was the mm. one who actually nominated her and she was confirmed. So the idea that someone with that little experience would get that close my sense of things is if there is a third Donald Trump nomination, she's probably a pretty strong candidate. I would say almost a front runner to get that. And if you're if you're a, a you're a liberal, you have to look at that and say, well, my gosh, that's sure not what we want, you know. And so, what can we do longer term uh, to to prevent that sort of thing? So that's why I would encourage my you know my fellow liberals to say, well, this is we kind of have to write off this nomination. And yeah, I'm I'm disappointed too, but this is this is what you get when you have a Republican majority in the Senate and a Republican president. And Kavanaugh's the sort of person who would be who would probably have been uh, uh, an unsurprising pick if any regular Republican would have been president with a Republican majority. Well, yeah, I mean, that goes all the way back to when Donald Trump was at the, uh, during the debate saying, look, here's the list of people that I'm going to, I'm going to put through because he didn't want to spook Republicans. One of the big reason Republicans voted for him were these picks. Yeah. He, he picks them relatively, uh, like you're saying, straightforward kinds of uh, Republican choices. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing to me, and, and I don't know how many listeners realize this, but assuming that Kavanaugh is uh, confirmed, which I'm going to assume, is that means that the court will be 55% Catholic and 33% Jewish, where in the U.S. population, it's 24% Catholic and 2% Jewish, which is just, isn't that just, I don't know, that just strikes me as so very bizarre. Yeah, I had actually not realized that. That is fascinating. Yeah, that and also, I mean, you know, and this gets into, well, does it matter that the justices are so unlike what you call regular people in their experience? And I made, you know, reference to that kind of where now we are getting these people who don't really have much experience at all in the real non-elite legal world. And there are some people who argued that the fact that, say, uh, Justice O'Connor back in the day had experience as a legislator, that that really mattered because it informed her decisions in a way that you wouldn't get if if your experience were so narrow. And, And I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of research that says that more diverse, and I'm not talking just like racially diverse, but experientially diverse groups oftentimes come up with better decisions in a lot of different contexts. And certainly there's no way to argue that experientially this Supreme Court is at all 
diverse. And I, you know, I, I think that's a, I think that's a problem though. I think this process is driven by the, the rigors of getting through the confirmation process. And so you get a certain type of justice and, you know, you know what the process is going to be like. It's not like the back in the days when say, you know, Scalia was confirmed, I think 98 to nothing or something like that, which just seems like, wow, talk about a whole different universe. So if you know, you have this fight and you're super concerned about this person being doctrinaire for decades, you're going to get a different type of person than, you know, you would have gotten 20, 30 years ago. And I think it's to the detriment ultimately of the court. Well, it's true. I mean, it it was not too many decades ago that you didn't even necessarily have a primary legal background. I mean, we've had governors being in Warren, for example. Um, so it's it is interesting that there has been that shift. Yeah, definitely. But uh, but of course, we will now. The confirmation process is not likely to really get going until this fall, which of course is going to make what was already a a very interesting. Uh, uh, fall midterm election, even more interesting uh, with, with all this going on. So there's going to be much, much more on this, certainly. Oh, yes. Uh, all right. Well, moving on, President Trump was in Europe this week for the NATO summit, where he, um, as usual, took center, center stage with what I will call his wild and reckless public pronouncements, uh, most notably, to me at least, a claim that Germany was captive to Russia because of the large amount of national natural natural gas I can speak it gets from Russia. Um, now, I would say as as not surprising to me, President Trump was either unaware or unconcerned about the fact that while Germany does import around 47% of its natural gas from Russia, it only imports around 9% of all its energy, which is obviously an inconvenient fact that would sort of undercut President Trump's insinuation there. Um, and the president also made a number of NATO allies actually question his commitment to the alliance by calling for other countries to essentially pay up or else. And once again, to me at least, he seemed unconcerned with the fact that NATO countries have for the last few years been increasing their contributions and moving closer to that 2% of GDP goal that they have pledged. Uh, he actually made one call for countries to spend 4% of their GDP on defense, which is a ridiculous figure, which even the United States itself doesn't come close to meeting. And then at the end of the meeting, he said he'd been successful in getting other NATO countries to increase their spending, though other leaders didn't support this and there was no actual formal agreement on spending that was signed. Now, that's the negative, and that's a lot of negative. But on the other hand, President Trump did join with the other NATO countries in agreeing to a, a new mission in Iraq, a higher troop preparedness levels, and condemnation of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. And then after that, he went over to uh, his uh, England for his first official visit, where he had a very cordial private meeting, by all accounts, with Prime Minister Theresa May, which was entirely undercut by an interview he gave to a UK paper in which he criticized May's handling of Brexit, suggested that it could actually hurt US-UK trade relations, and then he praised her political rival Boris Johnson, who recently left May's government over disagreements concerning Brexit. So, uh, Trey, what do you make of President Trump's, um, I don't know, performance <laughs> here? I was going to say, you lay out only about 30 things, and then you're like, here you go, Trey. Yeah, exactly. Um, no. <laughs> no, it is. There's a lot of things going on with this NATO meeting that is, as we've already noted, and we'll talk more about, is being shadowed by this forthcoming 
Trump meaning, you know, did you see the uh, German news network's response as they were trying to report on uh, Trump's comments? I, I didn't. Uh, fill me in. Oh, my goodness. It's hilarious. So uh, there's all of these different stations where they're trying to, like, with straight faces, explain that, you know, they're uh, captive <laughs> to, <laughs> to Russia. Um, so listeners, if you wanted to see something that's really funny, um, you don't see Germans kind of crack up that way that often. So I, I, I you know, they're generally, you know, they're the bad guys in our film. So you can, you kind of get the, uh, you know, the German accent's always the bad guy. But in this case, it's hilarious. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Trump's strategy is here. What I think might be happening, Michael, is that I think trade is the primary thing in the front of Donald Trump's mind right now. Uh, and we're going to talk more about that in terms of China in a little bit here. Uh, I think that's on the top of his mind. And so th- all of this can kind of be seen through when he is dealing in trade policy, it seems to me, he is dealing in what we might consider to be strong Trump, angry Trump, uh, you know, part of the deal Trump, I mean, whatever that uh, that persona is that he has for that kind of, oh, I'm going to make sure that you do what you're going to do. That seems to be his singular play on trade. And so I think that he was really approaching NATO from that trade point of view, as opposed to thinking about it in a kind of militarily or strategic point of view. And I think that that when you look at it through that paradigm, it at least helps understand what Trump is uh, is doing during these uh, these visits. so you mean in the sense of like it's it's that kind of zero sum mentality and it's you know we're we're adding in we're putting in more inputs than these other countries and so therefore that must be by definition unfair and he's not kind of considering the larger US role as 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 a superpower and 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 that sort of thing and kind of our long standing commitment to kind of guaranteeing the security of of Europe and the other benefits that accrue from that sort of thing Exactly. I, I mean, I, and again, I think you see that again when he ha- he's having his comments with Theresa May, because what he took the exit side because he sees the EU as a trade problem with the United States. And so the fact that they're not having a hard Brexit is right. evidence that he needs to make he needs to put some pressure on them. And so I think that's exactly what was happening here. So as opposed to thinking about it in that kind of militarily strategic, as you're calling, you know, the defense of Europe kind of, I don't think he's thinking about that at all. He is in money mindset. He is in trade mindset. And in all honesty, as, a, as, a, as, an, as an observer, I think this is when he's at his absolute worst. Yeah, I certainly agree. And, and speaking of, you know, <laughs> absolute worst, you know, also on trade this week, uh, you know, with China, President Trump announced uh, added tariffs on it's hard to believe two hundred billion dollars in Chinese goods. Now, now these tariffs they won't actually go into effect for several months. There's a public comment period and, and, and so forth, but they're not only considerably larger than those initial thirty-four billion in tariffs that he imposed, but they're also going to cons- include consumer goods instead of only industrial goods, which that first thirty-four billion was. Which means that Americans are going to be a lot more likely to feel this impact sooner and more directly starting, I would guess, it looks like how this would play out right before the midterm elections. And 
And, you know, Republicans in Congress have been pretty strong in denouncing this move, but it seems to me that they lack the political will to actually do anything about it. I mean, this week, okay, the Senate did vote 88 to 11, passed a non-binding resolution calling for a role for Congress when the president imposes tariffs using this national security authority, which I think anyone who looks at it is kind of, this is the kind of a bogus sort of thing. But this to me is completely ridiculous because if Congress really wanted a role, they could take back the trade approval authority that was theirs in the first place. And of course, you know, it's important to point out that an 88 to 11 vote is well in excess of what would be needed to override a presidential veto. So this is pointless, meaningless posturing. Uh, I, you know, I it just, I don't know how to analyze it in other, in, uh, in order to say that the Republicans in Congress simply lack the political will to go against their president, even though they know that this is a disastrous policy. I, what's, Help me out here. Uh, you're- <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because originally the reason that Congress vests this power with the presidency is because Congress was the, the trade barrier problem for decades. Yeah. And so the goal was to try to make free and open trade more possible by vesting it over in the presidency. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, and so to see this kind of flip around, I think there's a couple of problems here strategically for Republicans. One is, is that I think many Republicans, I, well, I say, I think I would, I suspect, I suspect that many Republicans are far more traditional on the uh, trade issue than uh, Donald Trump is. However, and this is what I think might help explain what's happening here is I think many of them are worried that that position in the Republican Party is a crumbling one. I, I know that I do. I don't think that the uh, I don't think that open trade, free trade is going to be a platform of the Republican Party much longer. And I think the reason that Republicans are worried about bringing that to Congress is that they will end up actually losing out on votes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think, well, I was going to say, I think you're wrong. I, I'm going to revise that already. Say, I hope you're wrong. Here, here's, you know, I, I think maybe the problem here is that the effects of a less free trade oriented policy have not yet been felt. You know, if you take a look at polling, for instance, uh, uh, in the 15 states that are most affected by the tariffs, Donald Trump's approval rating is 57%, according to a recent poll. And you think, well, how could that be? Is it, well, you know, right now, we regular people aren't feeling the effects of this. And so my hope, if things keep on going in what I think is this tragic direction, that people will all of a sudden, once they start to feel it in their pocketbooks, will rethink this as, and then it will be more politically advantageous for the Republican Party to get back to what I would argue is its correct view on free trade. But the problem is, by that time, in some ways, it it almost will be too late. I mean, if you look at what China is saying, they're saying, you know, we're going to help affected businesses. We're going to encourage them and help them to find non-U.S. suppliers for a lot of the goods they currently get from the United States. That's a big deal. Because once you change your supply chains and, you know, shift people in that, shift suppliers, that can be pretty difficult to get that business back. So by the time we're feeling this, that can be a hit that can take a long time 
to recover from. And that's, you know, my concern. And not only that, but there are no current trade talks with China. And as far as we know publicly, there have been no announced plans for future trade talks. And honestly, I've said this before, China is an authoritarian regime. I don't see how they blink before us on this, which has to be the Trump strategy. And I just think he's just leading the the economy, leading the country right into a ditch on this. And gosh, it just drives me nuts, Trey. Well, I, well, you know, I mean, as being the libertarian kind of guy that I am, this this bothers me as much as it bothers yeah. you. I, but I, unfortunately, I think I'm a little more pessimistic than you on this, Michael, in the sense that I am I am simply not sure that I don't think history speaks well for voters recognizing the negative impacts of isolationism in a, a fashion that results in a pushback towards free trade. And I, I think the reason for this is, have you ever read the book, The Choice? It's a little slim volume. You know, that, that sounds familiar, but uh, refresh, my, refresh my memory. So in The Choice, uh, based, what, what, it's this kind of weird premise that economists only basically get to go to heaven once their uh, economic point of view is adopted. <laughs> Uh, and so a number of uh, free trade uh, economists basically appear kind of as a ghost uh, to this individual before a presidential nominating speech. And they in attempt to convince this guy why free trade is a positive thing, even though it's kind of hard for him to see. So he has these kind of vague feelings that things aren't as good as they could be, but he doesn't exactly know why. And so the book actually kind of ends on not as positive uh, of a note as you might imagine, because it basically says, well, it's kind of hard to understand. And so you're left hanging out whether this guy's, how's he going to, you know, how's the speech going to play out? Right. And, and I think this is in fact the case when it is. So you're absolutely right. Consumer goods are included now. We talked about last week that the kinds of goods being taxed, were going to come down that pipeline to consumers relatively rapidly we're talking about the electronic components that are in your phones and your tablets and your computer uh, and your pcs it's not going to take that long for your things to cost 50 dollars more but here's where i'm i'm more pessimistic i don't know if the average person's going to go walk into the store and think to themselves oh my goodness this computer that was 499 it's 550 now right screw donald trump finally yeah. no because <laughs> you you're right it's, it's time different. to open up the barriers no that's a great point because it's different from something like say gas prices where you see them on signs every day and people have that kind of natural reaction they're very price sensitive because they have that information all the time but how often do you buy some of the things well not very often and so lacking that information i think it is harder to make that connection and you know there's another book i i've talked about this before economist uh, brian kaplan had on the show a couple of times uh, he wrote a book called the myth of the rational voters a great book and what what he found is that voters are just systematically uh, incorrectly informed about certain things like one of them being the benefits of free trade and and that's why i said my concern is by the time this might be severe enough for people to really feel it. We could be at a point where it would be really difficult for us to recover from. Not impossible, certainly. I mean, we're we're a big, robust economy, the biggest in the in the world still. But it's going to make it a lot harder and impose a lot of pain on people. 
Well, and who knows who will be the president at the juncture that pain is even recognized. And as we well know, economic pain is not rationally divvied out, as you're well pointing out, but it's oftentimes attributed to whoever happens to be sitting in the seat at the moment that pain occurs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, I continue to hope that this will somehow magically turn around. I, I would, you know, I would love it if, if I, if I could come on the show in a couple of months and say, my gosh, the Chinese blinked. Donald Trump was right. I need to rethink how I understand global trade negotiations. That would be, that would, I would love to say that, but I honestly just do not see that. I just do not see that happening uh, for the sake of the country. I, you know, I hope I'm wrong because I don't see president Trump changing his path on this for sure. Agreed. All right. Well, we, you know, we saw some domestic political theater this week. Uh, FBI agent Peter Strzok testified before house committee. Uh, you know, it was really an opportunity for both sides to grandstand uh, Republicans claiming that uh, Strzok's personal bias against Trump has tainted everything he touched, most notably the Mueller investigation. Whereas Democrats argue that Strzok has been unfairly targeted and point to that recent Justice Department Inspector General report that, while they criticized Strzok for his personal comments, found no evidence that any investigative decisions were affected by political bias of, of him or anyone else at the FBI. And further, they claim, and rightly so I'd argue, that Republican attempts to destroy the credibility of the FBI in the hope of insulating their president from whatever Robert Mueller might find is a really a horrible, tragic error that's extremely bad for the country. And I think that's exactly right. Trey, what do you think? Well, I mean, we, we, there was actually two testimonies this week, which I think was interesting because Strzok got all of the attention. Because it, as you point out, it was the political theater. It was the chance for everybody to have or attempt to get the gotcha moment to attempt to have the moment that's going to play on, on cable news. But when everything, when the dust, dust settled and everything was done, we also had the interview with Lisa Page, which apparently done behind closed doors was a much more productive interview for understanding what was occur occurring during the investigation. So I'm with you. I think that I think Congress has gotten into a bad habit of wanting to have great political, I'll call it political cable television, you know, and, and that, that's what that interview was. If you're really interested in what's happening, I think probably the more interesting one is some of the comments we get coming out of a Lisa Page interview. But I have grown a little bit wearied of the high profile congressional grilling of an individual for the purposes of hoping to get a few sound bites here and there. It, I mean, it's almost intolerable to either read the transcript or try to watch the thing in this case at the 10 hours of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah in sequence, which is, uh, which is unfortunate because that's, that's an, that's what you should be able to do with a good hearing. Yeah. Well, well, you know, and of course this sort of thing has always gone on to a certain extent, but what, what I think is different and what bothers me even more is it seems like now the initial move and almost the only move is to simply try to shut down all inquiry into anything that you oppose by questioning the and to trying to destroy the credibility of the person who's investigating it. And, you know, that's always been on the table there, certainly. But now it just seems like so the primary move, whereas, of course, what you would hope 
ideally is that you would say, well, I will, I will take issue with these findings, with this logic, I will introduce different evidence, but that's not what happens anymore. And, and that to me is incredibly troubling. Well, it's just like uh, the Texan Republican asking uh, Stroke, you know, did he look into his wife's eyes and lie to her yeah. about Lisa? Well, who cares? I mean, yeah. I, I care. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but I don't care too, right? So, in the sense of, is this is this worth anybody's time? And then, of course, you got to have the, the the now standard Democrat yelling back at him. What do you need your Medicaid? I mean, that's what I expect my students to do. It's not what mm-hmm. I'm. I know that's it's these, this kind of thing. I'll be honest, Michael, it's t- sometimes tough to talk about it because it frustrates me enough that this is kind of the level of discourse that we're going to have over an issue that clearly both parties think is important enough to warrant this length of a, yeah. length of a discussion. Well, I, I feel like this question has been asked and answered by the Justice Department's inspector general. Did did Peter Strzok have clear bias against Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. He, in fact, even said that he, I think in the testimony, he detested Donald Trump. So there's no question about that. I think it's also fair to suggest that uh, in his public or in his Twitter statements and other things, that conduct is the sort of thing that might be grounds for dismissal from the FBI. And that's certainly something that might happen. But the most important question here that, in fact, was investigated by the inspector general was did this bias affect investigative decision. That's what really matters. And the IG's answer to that was no. And so, you know, I think you're asking the wrong question if you say, was he biased? Yeah, of course he was biased. And we all are. Good luck finding an FBI investigator or anyone who is completely neutral. That just doesn't exist. And the question is, can you put that aside and be impartial in what you are doing as opposed to what you're feeling. And I think the answer to that is in many cases, well, yeah, you can. That's why we have procedures, you know, that 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 uh, govern what these folks do. And so that to me is what you focus on. Were the correct procedures followed? Not was this person biased? Of course, of course he was biased and maybe he should lose his job. But that to me is not the most important question. Yeah, it's a separate question and it shouldn't be a big surprise to anybody. So. If you're at work and you're close with somebody, that's the person you're going to complain with. Yeah. That's just that's yeah. the nature of it. I mean, and just because you're complain, you know, just because you complain about how your boss is an idiot, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to take steps at work to hurt or destroy him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just you say things and, and granted that comment about we will we will stop him. That's that's the worst. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's hard for and I understand and this is where I certainly have uh, an amount of of sympathy. If I'm a Republican, seeing that that to me, you know, Strzok's explanation was well by we. I meant the American people, and that just doesn't really pass my BS meter test on that. I think what happened is he made an intemperate statement on what he thought was a private forum, and he didn't actually follow through on it. We've all, I think, many of us have done those sort of things, but. To me, that sort of statement itself might be grounds for dismissal. But did he follow through on that? According to the IG, no, he didn't follow through on that in any way that was that was discernible. So that's kind of where I where I land on that. You're absolutely right. There's there's the two keys. In all honesty, in some ways, the FBI should just let him go to make this move on. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, um, I think that pretty much uh, uh, takes us to the, the end of our of our show for today. But, you know, I should point out that uh, if 
you want to hear us talk a little bit more about some things like Trey, for instance, I'd love to get into uh, Donald Trump's recent uh, pardons and what they say. Also, the matter of the whole Jim Jordan, Ohio State uh, University wrestler, you know, uh, inappropriate sexual uh, uh, abuse scandal. And so I think we will have a chance to get into that in our supporters only uh, bonus show. And of course, if you're a supporter, that will be waiting for you probably by the time you hear this, assuming I can get it out quickly enough in post-production there. Um, but if you're not a supporter and you'd like to check that out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links or, and support the show that you'll see there. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that, and that would, that would be great. Um, but that is it for this particular episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. And of course, uh, subscribing to the show really helps as those sharing episodes, which is easy to do in your podcast app, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does help. And if you want to get in touch with us, you know how to do it. I'm sure mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week. This week, we were a little, uh, a little quiet uh, between Trey being in the midst of moving stuff and uh, not stuff, but moving actually himself and his family and <laughs> yep. Jay being on, uh, on vacation and me. I took a little mini vacation there. We were sort of, we went kind of radio silence, but we'll pick up on that. Uh, that's facebook.com slash politics guys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.